Good morning. I'm very excited today, this week after Easter, to begin a new series called Jesus Makes It Safe. We're going to we do this morning is we're going to, um, I'm going to kind of set up this issue and then I want us to look at the kind of the negative of what can happen with this. And then I want us to see where Jesus makes this thing safe. So hopefully that will explain a little bit about where we're going. If not, just uh, hang on for the ride and we'll try to get there together. Um, I want to start by saying this. There's a documentary on Netflix right now called Behind the Curve. And it is about a group of people who call themselves flat earthers. How familiar are you with flat earthers? Who knows what flat earthers believe? They believe that the earth is flat. Man, you guys are on top of it. They believe that our planet is a flat disk surrounded by a giant ice wall with the sun and the moon rotating in circles above our heads. Did you know that the number of people who believe in a flat earth are actually growing and growing? And so there's this documentary on Netflix called Behind the Curve, and it was actually produced by flat earthers. They came out with these different science experiments, and kind of the goal of this was, hey, we're going to once and for all prove to the world that the earth is flat. And so they did a number of different experiments. One that stuck out to me was they took these three kind of poles of equal length, and the thought was is that we're going to put them a mile apart. We're going to shoot a laser from one of them to the other one, and if the earth is flat, then the laser should just hit all three of them at the same point, right? And they did that experiment, and it did not work at all. They did a couple of other experiments, and, and actually the thing and, uh, that surprised me was each experiment they did only proved that the earth was round. Now that didn't surprise me, because I already suspected the earth was round, you know. <laughs> but what surprised me is that they would, they would kind of uh, double down on this. And so how did the flat earthers respond to the clear results of experiments that proved the opposite of what they believed? Here's what they said at the end of this documentary. Wow, that's kind of a problem. Uh, we obviously are not willing to accept those results, so we're going to start looking for ways to disprove it. So get what they're saying. Rather than change our beliefs, we have to change reality. I, I was gobsmacked at this, and I, I, I'm watching the show going, why would they double down on that? Like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you see this experiment and go, you know, I always believed the earth was flat, but I see this now. Science tells me something different. And they interviewed this psychologist who tried to shed some light on why they would double down. Here's what he said. Because for these people, it becomes a question of identity. Who am I in this world? And can I define myself through this struggle? What he's saying is that the flat earther's identity is defined by their beliefs and even opposition to them only further solidifies that. So they say, we are a flat earther, and someone comes along and says, well, let me show you, like, actually the earth is round. And they say, no, it even strengthens our resolve. In other words, certainty is their identity. And if you define your life by your certainty that the earth is flat, you cannot afford to be uncertain. You can't afford to wrestle. You can't afford to learn or grow or change. Because if their beliefs ever changed, who am I in this world? I would no longer be a flat earther. Now, I'm not picking on flat earthers. And if any flat earthers are here, you know, that, that's great. I'm not picking on you. All of us are like this. I was reading that neurological studies have shown that the pleasure centers of our brain are activated anytime we hear facts or opinions that confirm what we already believe. 
And the fight or flight centers of our brain are activated anytime we hear facts or opinions that contradict what we believe. In other words, when we hear our beliefs confirmed, we feel pleasure. We feel good. When we hear things that threaten our beliefs, we feel anger. And if our belief is so centered to our identity, we can actually feel pain. When you define who you are by certain beliefs and your beliefs shift, then who are you in this world? Now, how does this impact us as followers of Christ? I've had a number of conversations recently with people who, uh, they said, hey, I would like to talk with you about something. I was like, sure. And they seemed a little nervous. They seemed a little apprehensive. I was like, what's going on? One person said, you know, I, I don't know if I believe that the Bible is all true. Is it okay that I believe that? Am I allowed to come to your church? I talked with someone else, this woman who said, you know, I really struggle when I read in the Old Testament some of the things that God commanded people to do, like genocide. Like, I'm just really wrestling with how to believe that. And these were real issues that they were struggling with. And I could see uh, palpable fear in their eyes, like I was going to expel them or denounce them or, or somehow out them to the world for their doubt. But all these conversations kept coming back to the same question. Is Pulpit Rock a safe place for me to wonder and process these doubts? So then over the last few months, I had two really good conversations that sent me to Scripture over this issue of doubt. First, I was having lunch with a good friend of mine who was concerned about some things I said in a sermon that were different than things he had believed. And he said this, quote, Thomas, you've always done a good job of being authentic about relationship struggles like losing your anger, going to counseling, and that's been so helpful for us. But when you're authentic about faith struggles, it makes us scared. So we're leaving the church. Now, I don't feel like I'm shifting my faith. In, in fact, I, I honestly can stand before you and say, and say, I feel closer to Jesus Christ today than ever. And there's something about that conversation, though, that bothered me, and I was trying to think of what, it, what, what bothers me about this. And it was about a week later that I was able to identify the feeling I had that was gnawing away at me, and it was this. I didn't feel safe in my own church. Church was not a safe place for me to wrestle with my faith. I'm going to let you in on a secret. Every pastor you've ever known has preached something while in the midst of struggling with it. I have preached the goodness of God hundreds of times, even on Sundays where I struggled to really believe it. Last Sunday was Easter, and we sang a song that had this line in it. You're never gonna let, never gonna let me down. Remember that? It was sung much better when we sang it, but that's basically the song. Now, I, had, I was sitting there singing that song. I sang that song in three different services and in the rehearsal before. So it was like all day long I'm singing that line, you're never going to let. I had two issues with that. First of all, I just have a problem with the word gonna. Just, as an English major, it just bothers me. But second, I'm standing here singing, you're never going to let me down. And in my heart I thought, but God, I feel like that often you have let me down. But am I allowed to think that? Is this a safe place? If the people standing next to me knew what I was thinking in my heart while I was singing, would they get upset? Would they decide they want to leave our church? I didn't feel safe. 
And what's crazy is the reason that my wife and I are at this church is because 11 years ago, we visited. The very first Sunday we visited, we sat right back there, and Pulpit Rock was doing something called Porn Sunday. We didn't know, like, are they pro, anti, what's going on at this church that... The entire morning was devoted to the issue of pornography. And we found out that this church had paid money to fly a porn star in to have a debate with a pastor over at Colorado College. Your tithes at work. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, if this church is bold enough to authentically talk about the things no one else is willing to talk about, this is the church for us. Let's get in. But now I come back to my problem. If being authentic about relationship struggles makes it safe for people who are struggling relationally, why doesn't being authentic about faith struggles make it safe for people struggling with their faith? And if church isn't a safe place to struggle with faith, pray tell, where, where is? So then I had a second conversation with a friend of mine who was concerned about something that we had on our website. Now, we have posted there, I've talked about this before, we have posted on our website a statement of belief. It's what do we believe. It's like these nine things. It talks about things like the Bible, the Trinity, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the return of Christ, how many ordinances we have in the church. How many this week have been thinking about how many ordinances does Pulpit Rock have in their church? If you want to know, you can go to our website and you'll find out, spoiler alert, too. Now, his concern was not about those words, but we had a disclaimer at the top, and it said this, just because we believe these truths doesn't mean they are the truest things about us. So my friend asked a great question. He said, Thomas, if these statements are not the truest thing about us, then what is? Both these guys' conversations lodged in my brain, and I've been thinking about them, and I, I think what they both had in common was this, there was a need for certainty, Certainty would make people feel safe. Uncertainty would make people feel unsafe. I don't blame them. I, one of the main reasons I went to seminary for four years is because I believed if I could just get all my doctrines lined up, if I could get them neat and tidy, if I could have a system in place, if I could have an answer for every question, that it would make my faith harder to discredit. Well, I've been going to Scripture over the last uh, few months, and I, I want to share with you some things I've discovered that I think will help make a safe place for you to wrestle with your faith as you journey with Jesus. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. Turn there now with me, Genesis 2. It's right after Genesis 1, if you're looking for it. We were actually here last Sunday on Easter, uh, last Sunday, Jonathan walked us through the entire gospel story, and it's probably one of the best, most clear presentations of the gospel I've ever heard. If you did not hear last week, it is a great thing to listen to. Go on our website and hear this. And he was explaining to us the whole reason of why do we need a resurrected Christ on Easter. And he took us to Genesis, and he talked for just a little bit as he was telling the story that there had to be a command that God gave us which would give us an opportunity to either choose to trust or not trust God. If we never had a choice to choose or not, or to trust or not trust God, then it wasn't real love. Real love is when we've chosen to, to, to worship him. And he was talking about that. But it got me thinking about the actual command God gave us. Now, here's what it was in Genesis 2.16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Have you ever thought about this was the litmus test? This was the one command that God said? It's very interesting to me. If I was God and I was trying to come up with one rule that would give people a, a chance to trust me or distrust me, I would come up with something like, be kind to one another, or don't leave the garden, or don't pet things with quills, or, or even if it's just this fruit, I mean, maybe you would have something like this giant hot fudge sundae. You can eat any of the broccoli you want, but not the hot fudge sundae. I mean, what's the temptation here? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Ironically enough, it's the deceiver who sheds some light on this for us. Because he tells Eve in Genesis 3, well, God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? Like God, knowing good and evil. Now, for all the lies that Satan tells, I think he's actually telling the truth here. You see, God had told Adam and Eve, you're free. Free to enjoy, free to work, free to flourish, free to be naked and unashamed, free to walk with me, free to be loved and loved, free to be known and to know. But what you are not free to do is to take this one thing from God, deciding and judging what is good and what is evil. You see, even though we're created in the image of God, we are not God. Only an all-knowing God gets to decide what is good and what is evil. Only an all-powerful God gets to judge what is good and what is evil. This is not the role of humans. It's never been our role. In fact, if you were here a few weeks ago before Easter in John chapter 5, Jesus explained that to us. He explained why all judgment has been taken away from us and given to Jesus Christ because we are not very good when we handle judgment. So I think Satan is telling the truth. You will be like God. Not that they'll become some super powerful thing, but that they're going to take on something that was never theirs to take on in the first place. So here's the question. You got this fruit here, the knowledge of good and evil. What was the temptation? Was, I've always wondered that. Like, why was that so hard for them to keep their hands off it? They had all these other trees to eat from. Was this tree's fruit just exceptionally beautiful and delicious? Was it an example of the wet paint sign thing? You know, where you see a sign that says wet paint, and how many of you are just like, I... I just got to touch it. I can't stand it. Within each one of us, here's what I think. Within each one of us, there is a need for purpose and identity and life. Who am I in this world? You may have heard this illustration before that in, within each one of us, there's a God-shaped void. There's a void in our life that's supposed to be filled with identity and life and purpose, and it's supposed to be filled with God. God is supposed to be that for us. Adam and Eve had life in that garden, and everything was great until the serpent implied, hey, you know what? You're missing out. There is a thing of life and identity out here that's outside of God, and you're, you need that. It's this thing called the knowledge of good and evil. And you know what, Adam and Eve, your life would be perfect and complete, and you'd have that identity you're looking for if you just had that other thing. Satan was calling them to look not to God for their identity, but to something else. Bible quiz, ready? What do we call something that people look to instead of God for their identity? What's that religious word? 
an idol, 100%. Good job. Here's the deal. The sin that separated us from God was idolatry. Centering identity around something instead of someone. Adam and Eve in the garden said, we will not get our life from God, we will get our life from this. This thing called the certainty and knowledge of good and evil. Now what does it begin to look like after you have decades and decades of that? Well, when you put your identity in an idol instead of God, here's where it can look like. We're going to flip now forward to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who had taken on personal responsibility to decide and judge what was good and what was evil. Now, it's so easy to read the the New Testament and think of these Pharisees as these kind of mustache-twirling villains. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. They're tying people to railroad tracks, and they're just horrible, horrible people. And no, no, no. I want you to see inside their hearts. The Pharisees wanted what every one of us want. Life, purpose, identity, peace with God. And they wanted it not just for themselves, but for their families and their neighborhoods, their communities, their entire nation. And I don't know if you can blame them. I mean, they look back in their history as they read back through and they, the stories that were handed down of how many times their nation got in trouble because people failed to believe or act right. And so they said, someone has to do something. Someone has to stand up and be the ones who decide what is good and what is evil. Someone has to define the boundaries. Someone has to keep the bad people out. Someone has to protect the good people in. Someone has to protect our nation. I guess it'll be us. In fact, this is fundamental to grasp before you ever read the New Testament. If you, if you, before you ever pick up the New Testament, if you could understand this one thing, it would unlock their, the, uh, the, the book for you. The world, dominant worldview of God's people was this. Purity makes God happy. We want to make God happy. We do it by being pure. You are pure in two ways. Number one, you're pure because of your heritage. If your father's father, father, father can be traced back to a name in a book, you're in. And secondly, you are pure by how you believed and how you behaved. And so they put a lot of effort there to be pure, to make God happy. And they had all these systems and beliefs and behaviors piled up to try to protect things. So Jesus confronts the Pharisees, and it's very interesting what he says in verse 39. You study the Bible because you suppose that in it you'll discover the life of God's coming age. In fact, it's the Bible that gives evidence about me. But you won't come to me so you can have life. See, Jesus is looking at these guys. He's saying, you want to discover the life of God? That's good. You study the Bible. That's even better. But you've shifted your identity from God to a book, to a set of beliefs about a book, to a series of doctrinal positions and guidelines that you've debated, you've shifted from here to here to here. But what you have not done is come to me. Your identity has become idolatry. This explains why the, disciples, or the, uh, the Pharisees and Jesus were always butting heads. The Pharisees were always asking questions to test Jesus' beliefs on certain theological matters. They wanted to make sure he checked the right boxes. They would come up with wild and crazy scenarios to test 
Jesus, trying to nail down his positions because, again, the most important thing was, does this guy have the right set of beliefs and behaviors, and can he trace his lineage back? And yet Jesus, every time, in every conversation, was always redirecting it back to himself. Now, I want you to hear something about the Pharisees. Again, let's give them some break here. They were not wrong for pursuing certainty. Many of their beliefs were based on years of deep study of Scripture, and they were just trying to protect. It wasn't what they believed. It was how they believed it. They were using their beliefs as a base of their identity in life, and Jesus kept saying, but I want you to base your identity in life in me. Go back to that idea of the God-shaped void for a minute. It's like these Pharisees said, well, we don't have any room for a God-shaped, we don't have any room for, for Jesus in here because this thing is already filled with our set of beliefs and our rules and things. We don't have any more space for this guy, Jesus. Here's the point. It's not wrong to hold beliefs. It's not wrong to hold beliefs tightly. It is wrong to build your identity upon certainty. This is the broken thing in us. It's always been the broken thing in us. This is what Adam and Eve were doing in the garden. They were, so all of a sudden they said, we are now uncertain. We don't know what to base our life on. And we thought basing it on God himself was enough. But maybe this other thing will give us the knowledge of good. And this will be what will make us complete. We always do this. We always sin by looking at all kinds of idols to define us because we'd rather embrace the pleasure of confirming our idols than the anger of confronting them. So if a series of statements on our website do not define us, what does? I would suggest the greatest thing that ever happened in history Something that the Apostle Paul made a specific point of making sure that every church he planted centered around this. And it is this. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Say that with me. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our faith doesn't rest in a book or a set of beliefs or a set of doctrines, but in a person and an event. The person of Jesus Christ and how his crucifixion and resurrection offers his life. So, for example, if you went to our statement of faith, you would see that in our statement of faith it says only believers who have professed faith in Christ should get baptized. I believe that. But I'm not going to let that belief define me. I can lock arms with my Presbyterian friend who believes in infant baptism. He's wrong, but I can still lock arms with him. Because that doesn't define me. Because you know what? He and I both agree that we are defined by the fact that we believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified. I believe everything that this Bible affirms is true. But if we came out one day and we found out, well, this, this one book actually had this error in it or this archaeological thing didn't happen this way, I, that doesn't, I don't lose it all. My identity is not based on that. I have beliefs about the return of Christ, but I don't want to base my identity on exactly how Jesus will return, especially if he comes earlier than I thought. That would be great. I have beliefs about creation, but I don't want to base my identity on how long it took God to create the world. I wasn't here. I trust what happened, but it's not my identity. And the problem is, is sometimes when we, when we so tightly attach our identity to these things, is it's like we're attaching to this house of cards, and one card gets pulled away, and the whole thing falls down. That's not how faith is. Let's have our identity based on what will never change. Christ and him crucified. 
how he lived, what he said, how he treated people, and the life that he offers. Let's be on a journey where it's okay to wrestle, where it's okay to grow, where it's okay to learn, where it's okay to even believe something less strongly or more strongly than you did when you were 12. I pray to God that you believe something more strongly or less strongly than you did when you were 12. Have you ever talked to a 12-year-old? It's crazy. And by the way, parents, I, please hear this. This is for parents. If you don't let your kids process their own doubt, then they won't have their own faith. You should not be worried when your kids express their doubts. You should be worried when they don't. So there's the issue. But if I do have a doubt, and if I do wrestle, what does Jesus do with that? I want to close with one last passage, Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, we find this guy, John the Baptist, the man of boldness, the man of confidence and clarity and certainty, the man who pointed at Jesus Christ in public, even though he was risking a lot, and said, behold, that's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. That's John the Baptist. But now we find him in prison. We find him in prison because Herod, the ruler of the region, had started sleeping with his sister-in-law, his brother-in-law's wife. As John was calling people out to repent and prepare the way for the Messiah, he was like, hey, we need to repent, we need to repent. Herod needs to repent and stop sleeping with his brother-in-law's wife. And Herod said, uh, and pulled him into jail, threw him in there, said, don't talk to me like that. Now John's in prison, a few days away from being beheaded. It's times like that where you go, do I really believe what I think I believe? Listen to verse 2. John, who was in prison, heard about all these messianic goings-on, all the miracles and things. He sent word to Jesus through his followers, are you the one who is coming? Or should we be looking for someone else? I know that I stood in front of a crowd of people and declared as strong as I could that you are the one. But now that I'm just passing words to you, Jesus, are, are you really the one? Are you the Lamb of God? Are you going to take away the sins? Are you the one I'm going to die for? John the baptizer has become John the doubter. What does Jesus do with his lack of certainty? Does he shame him? Oh, John, I can't believe after all this time you're asking that. Uh, you're not even going to go watch you baptize anyone anymore. Jesus responds so lovingly to John's humility, and he actually uses John's doubt to do something amazing. Listen to what Jesus sends back a reply. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. Blind people are seeing. Lame people are walking. People with virulent skin diseases are being cleansed. Deaf people can hear again. Dead people are being raised to life, and the poor are hearing the good news. I love this. John had a very simple question. Are you the one? Jesus could have had a very simple answer. Yep. Instead, he starts a conversation. Go back and ask John, well, what do you see? What do you hear? What do you think? Even though John is trapped in this prison cell with a little small window, what Jesus is doing is he's making it safe for him to wrestle so that he could look out and see the bigger picture I want to caution us that certainty can sometimes lead to idolatry. Do you know what does not lead to idolatry? Humility. 
Humility that's open to question, that's open to wrestle, that's open to look, that's open to learn, that says, I want to keep growing as long as it's centered on Jesus. And that's really where Jesus ends this story in verse 6. He last part of the message to John is this. John, God bless you if you're not upset by what I'm doing. That's a really interesting phrase. That word upset is a word in the original language, scandalon. It's where we would get our English word scandal. It's to be so outraged and angered, so offended at our unmet expectations that we reject Jesus. What Jesus is saying to John is, John, you're wrestling with your faith, and that's okay. Don't let your doubt turn to scandal on. Don't let your wrestling turn to such offense that you end up rejecting me. Keep me as the center of your identity. I know you're in jail and it doesn't seem to fit the program that you believed. I know that you're about to die and it doesn't seem to fit the faith that you had. But just keep focused on me and me soon to be crucified. And because Jesus made it safe for John, we can do what John did. John didn't wallow in his wondering. He, instead of leaning away, he leaned in. And this is what I love. He took his doubts about Jesus to Jesus. So I call you to this. Take your wrestlings to Jesus. Take them to Jesus' words. Take them to Jesus' people. It's okay. Church ought to be the safest place to wrestle with your faith. And I believe that the cost of not sharing our wrestlings is too high. When we fail to share our doubts and wrestlings, we fail to give people permission to struggle. And this is so dangerous because when you have questions that are unspoken and unvoiced and you don't feel like you can talk about that anywhere, over time it turns into cynicism and anger and even loss of faith. And I caution you to be wary of people who have all the answers and never seem to struggle. They're not real. And if you do wrestle with your faith, welcome to Pulpit Rock Church. We are not a normal church. We're a church for people who struggle with doubt because we see that doubt is an opportunity to draw near to Jesus because Jesus makes it safe. So today, follow John the Baptist and take your wrestlings to Jesus. May they lead you not to certainty in all things, but may they lead you to Jesus Christ and him crucified for you. Will you pause and pray with me for a moment? If you were completely honest, where is it you wrestle with your faith today? Do you wrestle with a truth that you've read in this book? Do you wrestle with the character of God that he really is good? Do you wrestle with a promise that hasn't come true? Have you been scared to bring that to Jesus Christ? Wondering if he would berate you or belittle you? Before we can share our wondering with others, we must feel safe to share them with Jesus. So Jesus, we bring to you right now 
our wrestlings and our wonderings and our doubts. And we hear you speak safety over us, that you love us, that you want to ask us questions, that you want to open our view. Even as we ask you what John asked, are, are you the one? Jesus, today will you show us that you are the one? 